The reason I played that video was because it has everything to do with our topic this morning. Mark chapter 6. I've mentioned before that the way that Mark arranges his gospel is he groups events or um, situations together based on themes. And today we have this section that actually lasts for quite a few chapters. We're not going to look at it. We're going to break it. We're not going to look at it just this morning, but we're going to break it down over the next few weeks. But it's rather interesting, and it's a little difficult to see initially, but I want you to look at chapter 6 of Mark, starting in verse 14. We have this introduction of what people thought about Jesus. In other words, Mark introduces us to this idea of who people thought Jesus was. And what's interesting about that is if you go all the way through chapter 6, in through chapter 7, and all the way into chapter 8, starting in verse 27, you have Jesus asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? So our section starts in chapter 6, with this very simple rhetorical question, who did the people think Jesus was? And then Mark brings that to its peak or its climax in chapter 8 with Peter's confession of who Jesus is. So what we have are these two bookends. And everything in the middle of that, all the events that Mark's going to talk about now, are designed to help answer the question, who is Jesus? So it starts with King Herod and some of the people and their confusion over who Jesus was. Then we're going to see... Uh, Mark shares some stories like the feeding of the 5,000 and others that are used to demonstrate to the disciples who Jesus is. And then we're going to have an interaction with the Pharisees who struggled with who Jesus was. And then it's going to all come to its, its climax. And it's actually the first of two climaxes in the book. And it comes right in the middle of the book where Jesus comes right out and asks Peter, so who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, or, and Peter's response is, you're the Christ. Remember, there's two climaxes in Mark's gospel. One is this one, which is Peter's confession, you are the Christ. The other one is at Jesus' crucifixion when the soldier looks up and says, this is surely the Son of God. Remember, those are the two points that Mark is trying to prove, that Jesus is Son of God and Messiah. And so this section that we're starting today is designed to get us to the climax, where the answer is finally given in the most blatant way we can think of. Because everything up to this point has sort of been showing examples to prove who Jesus was. Now it's just going to come right out and say it. So that'll be in a couple of weeks when we get to that confession of Peter. But today we're going to look at John the Baptist. And at first we might kind of wonder how this really fits into this. And there's a number of reasons why it fits in. But at first you might say, well, how does that sort of lead us to understanding who Jesus really is as the Messiah. And we'll see that, and and I'll cover that as we get to the little end. And there are a number of reasons why Mark includes this, but what we really have here is kind of a tribute to John the Baptist. He's been a somewhat minor player in the gospel, but he was a fairly major player when it came to Christ's ministry. So as we look at this, we're going to look at just uh, verses 14 of chapter 6 down through uh, 29. It focuses on Herod's, Herod's murder of John the Baptist. Let's go ahead and break this down. I'm going to read through verses uh, 14 through 16 to start with. As King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. In other words, he had seen Jesus, was wondering who Jesus was. Some people were saying John the Baptist had risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet. 
like the one who, or like the one uh, prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So as Jesus' reputation grew among the people, many people failed to recognize his true identity. We have a good example here. Some believed that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. They had thought he had been brought back to life. Probably a better way to say it is probably thought he had been reincarnated. Others were saying that he was Elijah who had returned. Others claimed that he was just a prophet, another prophet. Didn't we hear that in the video here? Just like other Old Testament prophets. According to Luke chapter 9, Herod actually struggled with this initially himself. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to do some bouncing around comparing other gospel accounts with this. Luke chapter 9, in verse 9, Some had been saying things like this. Jesus is just another prophet, or maybe he was John risen from the dead. But look at Herod's response in verse 9. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. The example that, or the the wording that Luke uses here, is that Herod initially didn't accept the people's claim that this must have been John the Baptist. Because he was saying, but wait a minute, I, I killed John the Baptist. So this can't be John the Baptist out there preaching. However, when you jump back to Mark chapter 6, I want you to look at what he says there. Verse 16, when Herod heard of it, John, whom I beheaded, what does it say? Has risen. If you look at the Greek text, it's actually much more emphatic than that, and it would basically read something like, it was me, I'm the one who beheaded John the Baptist, so I should know that he was dead. But now he believes that somehow John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And so what we, what we really learn from this, these few uh, verses here is that Mark is beginning to start this section with this question. Who do people think that Jesus is? They had seen him performing miracles. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him, him uh, cast out demons. They had seen his teaching in the synagogues. They were amazed by what they heard from him. They thought he was a wise man and a rabbi. But ultimately, they struggled with the real question of who he was. They knew there was something unique about him, so he must obviously be at least a prophet, or maybe better than a prophet, maybe he was Elijah coming back, or some were thinking again that John the Baptist, this good man, had risen from the dead, and that's where Herod stood. And so from there, what we find now is that Mark takes a bit of a a sidestep, if you will, and he steps out of his primary purpose at this point, to give a tribute to John the Baptist. But as we'll see, this tribute to John the Baptist helps us with identifying Christ as Messiah. So let's go ahead and look at uh, the death of John the Baptist, verses 17 through 29. First three verses, starting in verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So we have an introduction to John the Baptist here through the eyes of Herod. Originally, to understand the context behind this, originally Herod was married to another woman. It was actually the daughter of an Arab king. There was a relationship there. I believe it was um, his niece, if I remember correctly. 
But he went on a trip to Rome, and he visited and stayed with his half-brother Philip. Herodias was Philip's wife. Well, while they were there, they struck up a relationship, and ultimately Herod divorced his wife, and Herodias divorced Philip, Herod's brother. And the two of them ended up marrying one another as a result. That happened somewhere around A.D. 27. Other historians like Josephus write about that. Well, that was a violation of the Old Testament law. It was adultery. And so John apparently confronted Herod on this. And according to the text, it says that he did it repeatedly because, the, again, the, the tenses that are used there, he had been saying to Herod. So it came up on more than one occasion. Now, we don't know if he had a personal relationship with Herod or if he just did it publicly. It may have been that he did it publicly because Herod was a public figure. And in John's preaching, obviously, um, that would have probably come up. Because Herod was a Jew, was supposed to lead the Jewish people. And so to call him out was an appropriate thing. Well, it seemed to have bothered Herodias, Herod's wife, more than it bothered Herod. If you look at verse 17, it says that Herod actually sent and had John arrested on account of who? Herodias, his wife. Look at verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but he, she couldn't do so. In other words, she didn't have the authority to do anything about it. But she obviously had a grudge against him. The text here tells us that to protect John the Baptist then, Herod had him arrested. Maybe to keep him out of the hands of his wife. Well, John the Baptist is out there running around. His wife behind the scenes could have done any number of things to have him assassinated, to have him killed. We're not really sure, but it appears, based on the text here, that Herod arrested John and had him put in prison. John spent about a year and a half in prison. And so it says here that John the Baptist, or I'm sorry, Herod, during that time, enjoyed listening to him. It also said that he was afraid of him. Why, does he, why was he afraid of him? Because he said he was a righteous man. It's rather interesting. John is calling out, uh, I'm sorry, John, uh, John the Baptist is calling out Herod about his sin, and yet we see that Herod still thought he was a righteous man, and he also enjoyed listening to him. Must have pricked his heart to some degree, but not enough to obviously get him to confess his sin. So what happens? Well, look at verses 21 and following. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet in his, or, uh, for his lords and military commanders and his leading men of Galilee. These are all the prominent men in his cabinet and otherwise. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. Well, she must have been some dancer, huh? And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? Well, here we have Herodias' opportunity. What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king, Herod, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, the promises he had made in front of all of these individuals, he was unwilling to refuse her. So what did he do? Well, immediately, verse 27, the king sent an executioner 
and commanded him to bring back the head of John the Baptist. And he went and had him beheaded in prison. He brought his head on a platter and he gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in the tomb. So what we have there is the death of John the Baptist. He died as a martyr. Again, he was probably in prison, it sounds like, for about a year and a half. We'll find out later his ministry didn't really end with him being in prison. But we're going to see that both his imprisonment and his death actually serve a purpose as part of God's plan. So let's look at why Mark might have included this in here again, because we're going to find that as we go through the rest of it, the miracles and other things he shows all sort of point back to try to answer the question of who Jesus was. Why did Mark include this small section about the death of John the Baptist? I think one of the reasons is purely chronological. Um, The next episode he's going to talk about is the feeding of the 5,000, and this happened right before the feeding of the 5,000. So even though Mark doesn't necessarily arrange things chronologically, this was a fairly prominent event that happened right before the next event that he's going to describe. So part of it might have simply been chronological um, for Mark to include it. Another reason is it explains Herod's paranoia. You can't just say that, well, it's not John the Baptist if you don't know John the Baptist is dead. And so it helps us understand why Herod might have been paranoid because he was the one that put John the Baptist to death. And we know that Mark, he's a storyteller, and it fits the story well. He likes providing the details, and so we can see something about Herod here. It tells us something about sin, too. Oftentimes we can be confronted, we can recognize it, we can recognize the individual that's confronting us as being righteous, but we still don't necessarily respond the way that we should, and we see that in Herod. So it gives us some insight into Herod himself. might be another reason why... Mark included this in his gospel. However, I think the most important reason is that John's death was actually a fulfillment of prophecy and part of God's redemptive plan. Let's sort of break this down. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 7. Mark chapter 1, verse 7, we have this. John the Baptist was preaching and saying, After me... One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. So John, from the very early part of his ministry, said that somebody would come after him that would be mightier than him. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. John chapter 1. Starting in verse 19. This is a much broader description chapter uh, 1 of John verse 19 this is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you and he confessed and did not deny but confessed I am not the Christ they asked him what then are you Elijah and he said I am not are you the prophet and he said no and they said to him who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whom sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. 
So basically, we, find, we have John in, these, in this instance here describing that somebody would come after him, after his ministry. And I think that word thereafter is important because really it isn't until the death of John the Baptist that Jesus' ministry, in some respects, explodes in a good way. I want you to turn to John chapter 3, verse 22. We have this episode that also reflects on this from John chapter 3. Look at verse 22. After these things, this is chapter 3 of John, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in in Anon in Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So what we have here is Jesus and John the Baptist their ministries being somewhat simultaneous. John was still baptizing, pointing people to Christ. Jesus was beginning his ministry where his disciples were baptizing people. And we have that coinciding. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, uh, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So what we have here are John's disciples being concerned because John's ministry is starting to diminish. Some of John's disciples are going over to Jesus and his disciples. John's disciples are concerned because Jesus and his disciples are now baptizing more people than John is. So what is John's response to that? Does he change his strategy? Does he attack his opponent? It's it's interesting when you... You will find, even within Christianity today, some ministries that are bothered by other ministries growing better and faster than theirs, competing for resources, finances. What's John's response to this? Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. In other words, he's saying, I didn't build this ministry. This was given to me. Something that came from God. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, he who has the follow, he who has the church, is the bridegroom, Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, me, John, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase but I must decrease. So we find John once again saying, no guys, this is the way it's supposed to be. I am supposed to decrease. I came before him. He now comes after me. I am supposed to decrease and he is supposed to increase. So while his disciples are all concerned that John's ministry is starting to diminish to some degree, John's response is, no, this is exactly the way that it's supposed to be. It's about Christ, not about me. It's not about my ministry. And he says, my joy has been made full. Can you imagine that? He spends his time in the wilderness baptizing, being persecuted. Um, and yet he's thrilled to see those people that he had pointed to Christ now leave his ministry and start following Christ and Christ's disciples. And he says that it made his joy full. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 4.
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's introduction to the scene was for one very simple purpose. He was to prepare the way for Christ. That was his only job, to prepare the way for Christ. I'm going to read to you from John. You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightened every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So John's the, John the Baptist was simply given that he might show people the light. Verse 15 of John 1 says, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was, of, or this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So while there was some initial overlap in the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist, as we saw in our passage in John, God's plan all along was for John to simply precede Christ and then ultimately to give way to Christ. I think that the gospel show us that this actually happened in two ways. The first one was in John's arrest. In other words, how was it that God planned for John the Baptist's ministry to begin to recede, to begin to make way for Christ. Well, the first one was actually his arrest by Herod. Back to Mark, if you would. Chapter 1. If you remember the way that, the way that Mark starts his gospel is he has this prologue, it's called, and it goes down through verses um, 14 or up into verse 14. And it's where he talks about the ministry of John the Baptist and then the baptism of Jesus. But he begins Jesus' ministry with this statement. Now, after John had been taken into custody, after John had been arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. So it was really at the end of John the Baptist's public ministry where he was arrested in prison, God had removed John the Baptist in some respects from the public eye when Jesus began his real public ministry. Now, Jesus had been ministering for a little bit already. We saw him ministering at the same time as John, as we cover in the book of John. But for the most part, Jesus' public ministry really began, began full steam after John was taken out of the way, after John was arrested. Why is that? Well, first off, it would have limited John's scope, would it not? Now, again, John was not put to death at this point. God did not eliminate him completely. The fact that Herod was still listening to him and perplexed by him indicates that John still had some preaching that he was doing, probably while in prison. So he still had a ministry. Also, Matthew chapter 11 indicates that John still had disciples while he was in prison. In fact, the last episode we see with John the Baptist is where he sends some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. And that's right before he was beheaded. So John still had a ministry, but it was much more restrictive. It was targeted primarily on a few disciples that he had left and on Herod. 
So the first phase, if you will, the first stage of God removing John the Baptist had to do with having him arrested, having him protected in some respects from Herodias. He was able to still continue on with some aspect of his ministry, pointing people to Jesus, but not in quite a public fashion. And so he gave way, if you will, if he diminished, as he told his disciples. The second phase of that was what we have in Mark today, which is the death of John the Baptist. It's interesting that the story we have regarding John the Baptist comes shortly before his death. Um, Matthew and John both record an event where John learns about the miraculous things that Christ is doing in prison. And that's the last thing we learn of him. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse starting in verse, we'll just read starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Verse 3, and he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? So John basically sends two of his disciples from prison to find Jesus to ask specifically, are you the one that we have expected? Some people have interpreted this as John's wavering faith. I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, when we look back, and you don't have to go there, but if I go back to John chapter 1, verse 29, listen to these words. Is it 1, verse 29? No, actually, it's, oh, I'm sorry, hang on a second. Let me flip over there. Help if I was in the right gospel. The next day he saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist, coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does that sound like he's struggling? This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom the Spirit descends, and, or who is descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So we, we really learn from this that Mark, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist wasn't necessarily struggling with who Christ was. So what is it that leads him in Matthew 11, to then send disciples asking, are you the one? I think probably the easiest way for us to answer that is to say that there was a lot of misunderstanding of exactly what Messiah was supposed to be. The general consensus among Jews was that the Messiah would come as this conquering hero to wipe out the Romans and establish the Davidic kingdom here on earth. And a lot of them struggled with the fact that Jesus was this mild and meek preacher and rabbi talking about the kingdom of God, but not doing too much to confront Rome. And so here John is, in prison, asking for confirmation, are you the one? It's not necessarily a crisis of faith as much as it is asking for confirmation, saying it didn't really play out the way that we expected it, Jesus. I think it's also something for his disciples. It's to get a definitive answer for his disciples. 
the last message that John the Baptist would teach to his disciples was, yes, this is exactly who we expected to come, even though he doesn't fit what we expected. In fact, I know that this is not necessarily a crisis of faith because in, in uh, verse 11 of Matthew, chapter 11, listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus doesn't call him out and say, oh, John, you're struggling. No, I really... Where's your faith, John? He said he does nothing but praise John the Baptist. In fact, he actually answers it. Verse 4, he says, Go and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have, been, or have had the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That little reference there, the take offense at me, is probably a reference to those who expected Jesus to fit the bill of some kind of Messiah, and when he didn't, they were all upset. Because he didn't fit their impression of who the Messiah was supposed to be. So John was merely asking Jesus for personal confirmation that he was exactly who John believed him to be. Messiah and Son of God. And that's the last thing we know of John the Baptist. We have his last words recorded here, ultimately before he was put to death by Herod. So what did God do? Took him home. So what do we do with this? Again, there are a number of reasons why Mark might have included this. I think certainly one of them is to recognize John the Baptist and the role that he played. I think in many ways this is probably God's tribute to John the Baptist. But you know, it's not all that unusual. If you think about how many of the apostles were martyred for their faith, You look at the eleven, not counting Judas, they were all martyred. If you think about Paul, he was martyred. You think about Stephen, he was martyred. Um, it's not unusual. You look at the number of Old Testament prophets. We're told we don't see so much in the Old Testament, but what we see in the New Testament is that many of the other unnamed Old Testament prophets were killed. What do we do with this? A couple of things I want to just highlight about this. John was obviously a follower of Christ himself. It's pretty clear. We've seen his testimony that he was absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was not just the Messiah, but the Son of God. But John the Baptist also fully understood his place in God's redemptive plan. He knew beforehand, at some point, I am going to diminish. My role here is to exalt the Messiah, to exalt Christ, to point people to him. It's not about me. It's all about pointing people to the Messiah. A time's going to come where I will diminish so that he can increase. And so John the Baptist fully understood his role and his function within God's redemptive plan. And it's interesting that when he's at the end of his life, he says, my joy has been made full. That's where his joy came from. So the first thing I think we can learn from this is that it's important to fully understand our role and our place in God's redemptive plan. Second thing I think we can take away from this is John wasn't interested in building his own ministry 
or in developing his own following. Remember when his disciples came to him, all concerned because, gee, you know that Jesus fellow, he's seeming to make more disciples than we are across the river. And John's response was, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. He wasn't interested in building his own ministry or developing his own following. Again, it was all about pointing people to Christ. I'll be real frank, you know, I wonder about that sometimes. Um, I grew up in an era where some pretty famous televangelists um, committed some pretty grievous sins. I think about Jimmy Swagger. You guys might not remember his name. Um, caught in a hotel room with a prostitute. Um, I remember his confession on television. He's weeping in the tears and everything. And, you know, he's still preaching away, still has a ministry. Um, it's not that people can't be forgiven, but it's still the same ministry that it always was, deceiving people. And um, his son now is in his footsteps and following along with that. But remember, uh, anybody remember Jimmy Baker and PTL? built Heritage USA and there's this big theme park for Christians and pilfered a bunch of money and ended up spending eight years in prison as a result of it. I remember when he published the book, I was wrong. It was a, actually a pretty decent book where he said, you know what? I was wrong. The gospel I preached was not right. I misled people. But what's he doing right now? Still got a TV ministry. Still fleecing people. Still teaching false doctrine. He's back in the pulpit on a regular basis. We see that over and over and over again where ministries oftentimes are built for the sole purpose of having a ministry, for making oneself rich. In fact, the gospel, or, um, Paul warned Timothy and Titus both about that. Watch out for these kind of people. Um, I'll be real frank. You know, I've been pastoring for, I think, I'm guessing 30 years now. I can't remember when I graduated from seminary. Um, there is oftentimes the temptation to want to see people um, want to listen to your teaching or to um, start following your ministry. There's always that temptation. Right now, one of the fastest growing models of church planting is the multi-campus church where you have a single head pastor and they, pull, they plant multiple campuses and they beam that pastor in on a big screen. And I'm not saying it's always the case, but oftentimes there's a certain element of pride behind that. Look at what we built. We've just recently seen the downfall of James McDonald. Harvest Church up in Chicago, um, eight-campus church where um, we have 20 or 30 ex-elders and church leaders that have come out and um, have, have provided thousands of pages of emails and documentation indicating that what drove a lot of that was pride. And um, again, I don't mean to demean McDonald. There's some serious issues there, some serious sin issues that he needs to deal with. But my point is that oftentimes within ministry, it becomes this great temptation as the ministry becomes popular and as people begin to follow that it becomes all about me. And I'm not saying it's always wicked in the sense that oftentimes it's just God is using me and I want to be used. And the bigger the ministry, the more I'm used. You know, the more books I can publish, the, the more followers I can have. And oftentimes I think that's from a, a heart that wants to see people saved and wants to see people taught. But it can become a grave um, temptation because then when things don't go the way they should or you get confronted or whatever there's things you begin to do to protect yourself and to protect the ministry and all of a sudden it's bigger than Jesus because it's now all about me 
That's not what John the Baptist dealt with. His joy was made complete when he saw that my ministry is done. People are leaving me and they're now going to Jesus. That's exactly the way that it's supposed to be. Which is why it is somewhat tempting sometimes to be the one that stands up in the pulpit. To think people are following me. When that's not the point. The point is that they should follow Jesus. And if the one in the pulpit diminishes, so be it. And so John the Baptist wasn't interested in building his own ministry or developing his own following. Isn't the same thing true when it just comes to our own personal ministries? Not necessarily here, but doing things for our own attention, making ourselves look good because of our ministry. But it really isn't about us. It's all about Christ. That ought to be our heart. And we see that in John the Baptist. Another thing we can learn from John the Baptist here is that he kept to his mission. He even demonstrated boldness in the face of opposition, ultimately in prison and facing death as a result of Herod. Do you think it was difficult being John the Baptist? He's out there in the wilderness eating crickets and locusts. Um, we don't realize that there was probably a significant amount of persecution that John the Baptist faced because we see exactly what Jesus and his disciples faced. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. Anybody that wants to stand up for righteousness is often going to be persecuted. We see that today. And so one of the things we can learn from John the Baptist is that he didn't waver from his mission. But not only in the face of persecution, he stuck to what the mission was. It didn't become bigger. In other words, I'm the forerunner. My job is to point people to Christ, and that is what I'm called to do, and so that is what I'm going to do. Oftentimes what we find, and this is one of my biggest frustrations, one of the reasons why I've never really desired to pastor a church on a full-time basis with, you know, basically be a senior pastor of a large church, I'll say a large church meaning 100, 150, 200 people, whatever it is, is because I'm not an administrator. My gift is not in, in running a church in that respect. I love to teach. I think that's why God has gifted me. Oftentimes, pastors have to be CEOs and have to be evangelists and have to be all these things. And some guys are good at that. Okay? But when you take a guy like me, I don't, I'm a teacher. That's where my heart is. And so I want to stick to that mission. I don't want to have all these other things that I'm not gifted or qualified to do. That's where the body comes in. And that's why we're told in the body that God gifts people the way that he does. It's not supposed to be the pastor doing everything. It's not supposed to be the pastor being the evangelist and the missionary and the budget guy and the preacher guy and developing the curriculums. The church, that's the church's responsibility. Okay? And oftentimes what happens is we try to fit into a, you know, we take a square person and put them in a round hole. I am square. John the Baptist knew his ministry, knew what he was called to do. Had John the Baptist said, no, 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 wait, it is about me building a bunch of following, and I can serve Jesus, but I'll just keep, I'll make disciples, I'll keep baptizing, I'll keep growing my ministry. But that wasn't what he was called to do. He was content with what he was called to do. But I think the challenge for us then is figure out what you're called to do and do it, just like John the Baptist, and do it in spite of the opposition you may face in spite of the difficulties you may face. That doesn't mean you don't do things that you're not gifted in. Sometimes we're asked to step up and do things, right? We all do that. But we have to be very careful that we recognize, this is what I was called to do. This is God's ministry and mission for me, and I should do it. 
just like John the Baptist did. And along with that, to remain steadfast, when challenged in that, I was reading some more articles about, my heart has really just been burdened for the last few years on the church in China. I was reading an article yesterday. I almost forwarded it on to you guys, but I don't want to fill your email inboxes with stuff. But it was written, there's a church called Early Rain Church in China that uh, about a year ago their doors were busted down and about 400 people arrested and the pastor has been arrested and beaten and some other things. And one of the one of the other pastors in the church that had been arrested along with the senior pastor wrote a fairly lengthy article about what he experienced um, through the beatings and other things that were happening within the police station when he was arrested. But to just see this guy rejoice in that suffering and that persecution and how, and it was interesting because he even said, I'm scared. I'm scared to get arrested again. But he talks at length about while I was in there and I was being slapped and beaten um, and dragged away, God somehow replaced my fear with peace and strength, and I could not have done it. Isn't that that exactly what he promises? And yet, he gets released, and he goes back, and he's still afraid. And he's like, but I know exactly what will happen when I'm there. That fear will disappear at that moment of persecution, because that's what God promises. And so he's just like John the Baptist, stuck to his mission, even in the face of opposition. The last thing I'll share here about John the Baptist was that he was simply content to be used by God. Simply content. Regardless of the consequences. He was content when his ministry was flourishing and people were coming out to the wilderness to see him. But he was also content when those same people started following Jesus. Just being content. I'll be real honest, I struggle with that, folks. I struggle sometimes with being content. I've already shared with you my own temptations. You know, everybody graduates from seminary, you know, wanting to, to go off and be a great preacher, great, great teacher. Um, we wouldn't have been in seminary if we didn't, right? Um, and there, um, there's times where we just simply have to be content. And I've had times where I've, um, I've been pastoring a small church and been content. There's been times where I've not been in the, the pulpit. And I've not been able to teach at all for a year or two. And Steve and I, when we were at Grace, there was a time period where I felt like I wasn't doing anything. I was getting frustrated because I wasn't teaching. But I had to learn to be content until God opened up other doors for me to continue. And, you know, I look back at that now and I think, wow, he gave me a period of rest because it's hard working a full-time job and teaching every week. And so God used that as a period of rest for me. And so I had to learn to be content at different times, how God works and what he does with our ministries. And it's pretty clear that John the Baptist was content in his ministry with what had been assigned to him. And he saw it just that way. He said, remember, I've only got what was given to me. So he didn't hold on to it with a clenched fist. He was content with the way that God chose to use him. Overall, I would say John the Baptist was a pretty amazing human being. He wasn't perfect, obviously. But he was a pretty amazing human being. And I think, again, as we look at this, and I'll wrap it up with this, how this fits into what Mark is doing with this bigger section is, he starts off with the question again, who is Jesus? What did people think, or who did people think he was? And so he introduces us in the very beginning of our chapter today. They thought he was Elijah. They thought he was another prophet. They thought he was John the Baptist. Herod thought he was this resurrected John the Baptist. He simply uses that as a bookend. Next week he'll get into the feeding of the 5,000 and use it to sort of reveal what the disciples thought about Jesus. 
And then he's going to share some examples of what the Pharisees thought about Jesus. Then he's going to get us into what the disciples think about him again at the feeding of 4,000. Then he's going to get to some healings that he does and reveal to us what those people thought about Jesus and then ultimately end up with asking Jesus the question outright, okay, let's put this to rest. Who do you say that I am? And we'll get our answer at that point. So this little bump out here, like I said, is part of that bigger picture, but more lightly knit into it, if you will. I think it's Mark saying, it's time to talk about John the Baptist as a tribute to him. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. It's pretty clear he knew who Jesus was. And so again, it, it doesn't fit as tightly and neatly into the package, but it serves a, a purpose for us today to reveal to us this man named John the Baptist and his belief in Jesus being both Son of God and Messiah.